Okay, so we're waiting to get our, our guest here. Well, we want to talk about the shortage now back here on Earth. Of, we have problems of our own here on Fermaterra here, including uh, the shortage of veterinarians here in British Columbia. The BC veter- the BC, the Canadian Med- Veterinary Medical Association sounding the alarm on this. They say veterinarians are burned out, stressed out. There is a mental health crisis in this profession and a lot of focus on this one this week after a video appeared on youtube have a listen to this now this is dr m she's a bc veterinarian she runs a youtube channel called the vet med corner and here she is sounding the alarm on mental health concerns for veterinarians have a listen to this my profession is hurting and it's in trouble we need things to change to reduce some of the stressors that are so immense for the people in the vet med world. Veterinarians in the province, uh, people calling for more training of veterinarians in BC to make up for that shortage. Let's discuss now with my guest, Dr. Rob Ashburner. He's the owner of West King Edward Animal Clinic. He's been a vet for over 30 years. He's a director of the Society of BC Veterinarians. And I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Dr. Ashburner, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Okay, when we take a look at this shortage of veterinarians, it seems quite severe in British Columbia. Like, I was looking at one report from the Advanced Education Ministry uh, that indicated like, there are hundreds of veterinarians short here in B.C. How bad is it out there right now? Well, you're right. The, uh, the report that the uh, Advanced Education uh, had commissioned was done in 2019, and at that time, they said we were 100 veterinarians short. That was before COVID, when many, many people who weren't pet owners got pets. And so now we're 2021, and uh, we uh, have the, the 100 there, plus an additional 100 per year, we're thinking, uh, uh, in shortages. Yeah, and let's let's talk a little bit about the, the impact that's having on, on the front lines for people in this profession. Like, we just played a bit of that clip from that YouTube video that's getting a lot of attention this week. Very emotional and powerful talking about how veterinarians are burned out, stressed out. She also talks about, she, she knows some veterinarians who've even committed suicide, which is tragic. But could, could you talk a little bit about that? Like, what are veterinarians experiencing right now? Well, um, I, I think all veterinarians in the province are uh, busier than they, uh, than they can handle. Uh, for example, in, in our clinic here, we've, I've been practicing over 30 years. This is the first time over this last couple of years where we can't see people the same day. In fact, now we're booking usually a week to two weeks out as far as seeing people, which is okay for routine procedures, but when somebody phones you with an emergency, an animal's sick, uh, it's very, very hard to accommodate that. And that leads to stress from the veterinarians who want to help, but also the owners uh, who want their animals looked after right away. Yeah, and has that been exacerbated at all during the pandemic? Because we hear lots of reports how people who were stuck at home during the pandemic, isolating, a lot of people got new dogs, they got new cats, they got new pets to help them through. Is that creating more strains and demands on, on services for veterinarians in BC? Yes, it is. No, that, yeah. it's the COVID sort of uh, took an already bad problem and uh, uh, made it really a lot worse. Right, and what's it like on a day-to-day basis for veterinarians right now i mean when you've got people or they're trying to get help for their animals you know you got i'm sure you have customers and patients that are sometimes tough to deal with 
Well, I mean, yes, we uh, we we do have patients uh, or customers who are, who are tough to deal with, but uh, you know, most people are really good, and uh, and all veterinarians, I think, in the province uh, try to accommodate people as best they can. But uh, it uh, where, where the stress comes in is there there are times when people just can't be accommodated. You know, we hear that uh, you know people will go to the emergency clinics and there'll be a you know, five or six hour wait to uh, to have their pet looked after in an emergency. Same thing here. If you know somebody calls and everyone's busy, we're in surgery and an animal's bleeding. You know, we're not able to deal with it. We have to send them elsewhere, and that creates a stress on not only the owners but also the clinics because uh, you know we're a helping profession and and we want to help. <laughs> Speaking of Dr. Rob Ashburner, the Society of BC Veterinarians about the shortage of vets in BC, uh, veterinarians reporting that they're stressed out, burned out on the job. We're not training enough veterinarians, right? I mean, I was just looking at some of the numbers, and is it the Western College of Veterinary Medicine in Saskatoon? Is that is that where BC veterinarians are trained typically? Yes, yes. Yeah. The training of veterinarians in Canada is very regional. All veterinarians uh, are all people in BC who want to become veterinarians uh, uh, paid for by the uh, um, Department of Advanced Education have to go to Saskatoon. It's the only, there's five vet schools in Canada, but that's the one designated for British Columbia. British Columbia, with a population of 5 million, presently trains 20 veterinarians. Um, The um, Saskatoon, with a population of 1 million, trains 20. And Alberta, with about the same population as Saskatchewan, trains 50. What? Oh, okay, well, that math is bizarre. So why are we only training 20 BC vets a year? Well, the Department of Advanced Education, in their wisdom, uh, feels uh, that's adequate. They uh, <laughs> uh, they feel that veterinarians will come from other areas, uh, other veterinary schools in Canada, to meet the need. And to a certain extent, that does occur, but it doesn't yeah. uh, fully meet our needs. Yeah, we need to train more, right, would you say? I would, I would say we do. More veterinarians yeah. and... Also, more veterinary technicians. Veterinary technicians are in short supply as well. Right, and I'm I'm sure there are no lack of people who want to be veterinarians. I mean, I remember I had a friend who, who her her dream was to be a veterinarian, and she did become one. But man, it was tough to get into a into veterinary school. She had to have top marks to get in. Right. Yes. Well, in Saskatoon, there are 20 people accepted from British Columbia. About 140 apply, and I would tell you, a hundred of those people are well qualified. Right. Okay. So you need, what is the position now of the uh, Society of BC Veterinarians on this? Are you calling on the government to fund more, more placements to train more veterinarians in the province? Yes. What, yeah. what happened is Al- Alberta started their own veterinary school and took their 20 students out of Saskatoon. And uh, so it, it, um, it um, yeah, gave lots of room for uh, 20, 20 people to come from BC. That was two years ago. And advanced education is still not uh, moving up to. Um, uh, do that to train more people. All right, thanks for coming on today to talk about it. It's an important issue. I appreciate it. All right, thank you for having me. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the shortage of veterinarians in British Columbia. You heard my conversation there with Dr. Rob Ashburner, Society of BC Veterinarians. These veterinarians are burned out, stressed out, experiencing mental health challenges. We're not training enough veterinarians. It's part of the problem. Severe shortage. My guest is Ian Payton, BC Liberal MLA Delta South. Very pleased to welcome him back. Ian, thank you for coming on. Thanks. Good morning, Mike. I know this is an issue you've been following up for a long time. What is your analysis of the situation right now? 
Well, it's pretty much like uh, your past guests that you've had on that are veterinarians. Of course, you know that my brother is a veterinarian for large animals and uh, horses. And uh, so we talk uh, almost on a weekly basis about the issues with uh, veterinarian shortages in British Columbia. Um, Corey Van Haft is also the executive director. I chatted with her this morning from the BC Association of Veterinarians. And it's it's in dire straits right now with... uh, with burnout from people, and, and think about it, people that take, you know, pets are one of the most important things in your household nowadays, especially with COVID and people acquiring pets uh, for comfort, uh, elderly people, and it's just very, very sad when, when pets get sick and they just can't get in to get uh, looked at by veterinarians and, and ultimately end up uh, dying, and it's a pretty sad time for people in B.C. without yeah. enough veterinarians. And really severe, it sounds like, mental impacts on veterinarians themselves there was a study that was put out by the canadian veterinary medical association that found that there was a a higher than abnormal suicide rate among veterinarians which is really troubling disturbing statistic i mean that's how bad it is would you say well very disturbing and i mean people you wouldn't think of veterinarians and suicide, but I, no. I can tell you from personal experience, I mean, as a former, you know, for many years I was a dairy farmer, and we, we have sick animals. People don't understand that, you know, veterinarians aren't just about cats and dogs. They're about uh, cattle and horses and and, and uh, things up, up in the caribou and, and the ranching industry and whatnot. So we need veterinarians all over this province to attend to animals that are that are sick or animals that need surgery. And right now, it's ridiculous. Like, we have written letter after letter to the Ministry of Advanced Education with the NDP saying, look, you've got the money to fund another 20 seats so we can get 40 veterinarians graduated a year out of Saskatoon instead of only 20. So why, why won't you put up the money to do that? Yeah, I mean, that just seems uh, to make make a lot of sense. Like 20, training 20 of vet, vets a year in a province of this size and, and with the shortage right now, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Let's squeeze a couple of calls in here while we can. Susanna on the line calling from the BC Interior. Hi. Hey. Um, yeah, we've got a cow ranch out in the interior of BC here, and um, we've definitely felt the pinch <clears throat> with the uh, vets being overworked and just lack of especially livestock vets like, Normally, when we spay our heifers, we make the phone call in February to book in April. I, I phoned this year to book in, in February, and um, it was end of May before they were able to see us. Um, I had a horse get his foot injured, and it was uh, a month before they could uh, see us. Wow. Thankfully, the horse was okay, you know, but it's just they're, they're tired, and especially with the fires and the evacuations, there was a lot more injured animals and um, injured livestock and stressed and everybody's just <clears throat> stressed and tired. We, we do need especially more livestock vets. You know, the ones we have are incredible, right. but they're overworked. <laughs> Susanna, thank you for calling in. Ian Payton, I'm sure that's a familiar story to you. Absolutely, Mike. And, you know, urban veterinarians, you know, fortunately may live, you know, 10 minutes from their office, so they go to their clinic to do their work each day. But, but rural veterinarians that are looking after cattle and, and horses in, in the interior and ranches in B.C., Sometimes, you know, they got to do a call. They got to get in their pickup truck and drive for an hour, an hour and a half to get to the ranch. So it's very, very time consuming trying to fit in as so many calls per day as a, a rural veterinarian in the rural parts of BC. Yeah. Let's squeeze another call in here. Chris on the line in New West. Hi, Chris. Hey, good morning, guys. I just find it 
completely silly that we're only training 20 vets. I just had yeah. my, my Husky attacked a week ago, or sorry, not a week ago, um, but it was a week to get her in for emergency surgery. So I ended up having to take her to, to emergency to, to, to have her looked at. I, I can't wait a week after, after you know, she's been attacked. Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, I was amazed, uh, Ian, when I was speaking to Dr. Ashburner earlier when he mentioned that we're training 20 BC vets a year with a population of 5 million. And in Saskatchewan, they're training the same number a year in Saskatchewan, 20 vets, and they've got like 1 million population. I know. Uh, your, your past guest gave us that statistic, and I couldn't believe it. Like, yeah. that's totally unfair based on the population. And, and, you know, if Mike, all you have to do is just go for a walk in the park or walk anywhere these days and see how many people have got dogs on leashes and whatnot. It's become a very popular thing to have pets, but we just oh, yeah. don't have enough veterinarians to look after them. Okay, 30 seconds here. So you're calling on the government. Why, is this a money issue? They need to put the money on the table to fund more of these spaces? or Ab- Absolutely. Yeah. The opportunity is there now for the university... Uh, the Western College of Veterinarian uh, has said, look, we've got an extra 20 seats that we will provide to British Columbia for students if the uh, BC NDP government will fund those extra 20 seats so we can get 40 veterinarians coming out a year instead of 20. They're talking about needing 500 vet- more veterinarians in the next uh, five years. Yeah. Thanks for coming on today. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about one of BC's great success stories now, the BC wine industry. Lots of challenges out there. We had a brutal wildfire season this summer, and there's a labor shortage in the vineyards. Let's discuss now with my guest, Miles Prodan, president and CEO at the Wine Growers of British Columbia. Miles, thanks for coming on today. My pleasure. Well, this time of year right now, is, is the harvest happening right now, or is it over? Where are we at right now? Oh, yeah, no, we're we're just probably, well, here's the challenge, is it varies. There's so many variables in this industry, it's incredible, quite honestly. And where it all begins and end, end, ends is in the vineyard. And so each vineyard is unique, each each grape is unique, and each variety of grape is unique. So it all depends on where you are, what you're growing. But generally, generally, the whites have come off, and we're probably about halfway through the reds. And so uh, it's been the earliest start we've seen in quite a while. Um, and it's looking really good, by the way. So uh, we'll know probably in the next couple of weeks uh, exactly where we stand in terms of uh, in terms of uh, quantity and quality. We'll have to go through the fermentation when we get the wine in the end to see what it is. But every, all indications are very positive. Okay, well that's really good to hear because I know there were concerns with the wildfires earlier in the season. Did how did that affect uh, grape production? Well, it looks as though it hasn't been that impactful uh, okay. again. But the challenge is it depends on how much smoke when the smoke was uh, uh, in the air and what stage the grapes were at. And then it depends on what kind of grapes there were. So there's so many variables in, in this whole mix. But as the berries are being picked, um, it doesn't look as though it's been that impactful. And you've got to remember, this is not the first time we've had smoke in yeah. grape growing areas in BC for, uh, for this is not the first time we've had it for the last couple of years. Wildfires are becoming uh, an issue for all of us and uh, our grape growers and winemakers are are getting used to it but uh, it's really not until it's gone through fermentation that you can really tell so wineries are encouraged and are taking the uh, do, uh, taking the opportunity to do some pre-ferments and then sending it out to the lab where it's actually a, a lab analysis will tell you exactly what what extent there if any the smoke impact is can wildfire smoke if it's really heavy and persistent can that have a negative impact on on the grapes like i was reading one analysis that said if if you have real bad smoke the wine 
it can affect the taste of the wine. It takes taste smoky. Is that true? Well, that's it's true. Smoky is a characteristic of of, of some grape varieties, regardless whether they're smoke or not. Like some of the big, deep, rich red wines, uh, your uh, Cab Sauvs and uh, some of the red blends. They they have a, a characteristic of smoke, but that doesn't mean burnt material. Uh, yeah, but that's right. your true. Uh, it's not just smoke; it's the actual ash. When ash falls and lays on the berries, that does have a detrimental effect. And um, when wineries see that or, or I- encounter that, and they have in the past in winemaking reaches around the world, it, it, they choose not to to make the wine, or they won't release wow. the wine. So in the end, it's really about uh, if if a winemaker's not comfortable with the wine meeting the standard to which they believe they, they, they need to maintain. And our, our winemakers across this province have a huge high standard, and hence why we're so popular. Um, they just will choose not to, to, uh, to release that wine. Right. So in British Columbia, what, we won't know the, the end result until those grapes are picked and processed? Yeah, and if there is, if there is some sort of uh, smoke impact that's really uh, yeah. detrimental to the wine, consumers won't see it anyways because it won't be yeah. released. I mean, if, if it goes to that extreme where there actually is smoke impact or smoke taint is the exact, is the, is the real ultimate end of that, of that uh, impact, uh, wineries will choose not to uh, release it because it just doesn't right. meet the standard. So consumers, in the end, will, will probably never know what happened or didn't happen. Right. Speaking of Miles Prodan, president and CEO of the Wine Growers of British Columbia, I guess it was kind of a... I don't know, almost like a good news, bad news thing, because we had the fires, which obviously is bad, and and the smoke. But man, the heat, I mean, the heat is good for the great production, is it not? Well, yeah, I think what you're saying, Mike, and it's it's true, is like it is agriculture farming at the the most extreme. I mean, we are growing grapes in some of the most arid conditions to begin with. I mean, you've got to think the Okanagan Valley, by the way, grapes are grown and made into wine all, all across this province, including on the islands and in the Kootenays and uh, up in the, uh, up in the Thompson area of, uh, of the Okanagan Thompson region. But, but you're, but you're right. It's it, that, that heat is something that uh, is we're, we're used to, but the heat dome that we had right. was potentially detrimental, but berries are like people when it's extremely hot. What do we do is we shut down and we go and find the shade. And that's exactly what the plants do. If it's too, it's too hot. They just shut down and uh, just kind of bide their time. Uh, grapes are extremely drought tolerant, and uh, in fact, uh, very you, 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 water control is how you encourage berry growth. So people are used to you know mitigating that with watering. Um, but there's so many factors that go into it. it it's, it's mother nature. Every every vintage has its challenges. Right. This this year was no different. Right. Some of the wineries on Vancouver Island were reporting some great, fabulous-looking fruit here during the harvest. They said the heat was actually beneficial to the grapes on the island, and it could be one of the best vintages they've had. I I, I would imagine. The trick to to growing grapes, and this is not me, it's uh, been passed on to me from uh, a lot of grape growers and, and, and discussions I've had over the years. It's not... It's not impossible to grow grapes anywhere in British Columbia, wine grapes. The challenge is ripening them. So what you need mm-hmm. to be able to do is have that, those unique, very warm days that we get and have gotten this fall across the province and those cool nights. And that's what makes BC wine unique is that that uh, that opposite of very warm days and cool nights. That really helps to get the balance between acidity. I mean, not to sound like a wine geek, but in the end, that's <laughs> why our wines are so fresh and so fruit forward, as we, as we call it, is because of those, those ripening conditions. And so what happens in the growing season, 
absolutely has an effect on on the quantity of grapes that are growing, but the quality comes down to how we ripen. And, and so far, it's been it's been ideal in terms of getting those right uh, days to uh, get those grapes to be the, the the best they can be. Okay, so you've got some potentially good looking grapes, but you also need people to pick the grapes, right? What about that labor yeah. shortage? How bad is that right now for you? Yeah, no, that's that's endemic around across you know across the province and so many different factors. I mean, we were challenged in the uh, in the early season uh, when it came to uh, pruning and taking care of the vines. As I say, you don't just leave the grapes to grow on their own. You've got to tend them. You have to make sure you're taking away enough leaves to let the sunlight in, but not enough to get them sunburnt. Uh, I've been told uh, probably a leaf uh, or a vine is uh, probably touched anywhere between six to eight different times throughout the, the growing season. And so that's manpower. Our wine region and wineries aren't big enough to be mechanized. Mechanized, There are machines operating them. And so that's labor. And there has been a labor shortage. We, we were kind of constricted with bringing in uh, uh, some uh, foreign workers that we rely on that uh, – have come for over years. I mean, these people are, are well known to uh, to their employers here, but uh, some of the uh, COVID restrictions really prevented that. And we're seeing that again uh, in the fall. But uh, uh, again, when it's harvest is on, it's all hands on deck. And uh, if you can't get the help, I think you'll recruit your uh, lawyers, your accountants, your, uh, <laughs> your, your truck drivers and uh, your grandparents and kids to get out there and help with it. Oh, come, come on. You're telling me there's lawyers out there picking grapes? <laughs> really? Well, well, it depends. I, I can't speak for uh, for uh, anyone I know, but uh, you know, when you need help, you need help, and so uh, it's it, it's work. But again, in the end, uh, the, the the reward speaks for itself in the bottom. Right, right. And so, does that mean uh, the wine industry is hiring? Yes. I, I, if you want to, if you want to uh, go to uh, to a wine a vineyard again, we're, we're tailing off to the end of it. But uh, if yeah. you wanted to go and uh, offer your uh, Offer your help. Um, now you got to be skilled and uh, you got to be willing to work outdoors, and uh, it's not easy labor. I mean, it's oh, hard sure. labor. It's farming. It's 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 farming. Yeah. But uh, yeah, well, when people they're looking for help all the time. And what we've got coming to is the ice wine harvest, right? So oh. those grapes are left until it gets to that required freezing point of minus eight Celsius. That generally happens in the middle of the night when you get that cold, and that really is all hands on deck. Those grapes need to be picked and processed at that minus eight uh, degrees and so trying to recruit people to do that uh, is a challenge but uh, so there's opportunities out there right okay last question for you miles when will you know how good the 2021 vintage in bc is probably uh the whites are generally in the tank right now starting fermentation the reds are just finishing off and those those need to be fermented and racked off into their uh, barrels for uh, further fermenta- fermentation but they're sampling all the way through this uh they can tell at the berry stage when they're pressing the, the grape juice so that's looking very good uh but we probably won't know till uh, early in the new year just exactly uh, how fabulous uh, it is and like i say all indications are that it's that it's great and that uh, the weather conditions and climatic conditions and Mother Nature is just yet another just another vintage for us to get through. Okay, um, that's great to hear. Thank you for coming on today with the update. Appreciate it. Anytime. All right, welcome back to the show. My next guest is Aaron Gunn, the conservative commentator on social media. He's got a lot of followers on YouTube. His videos have racked up hundreds of thousands of views on there. He is running for the B.C. Liberal Party leadership. Uh, the NDP already attacking this guy. They say the, the Liberal Party should ban him from running for the job. Well, let's see what he has to say about that now. Aaron Gunn, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. 
Okay, Aaron, why do you want this job, BC Liberal Party leader? Well, I think first and foremost, uh, from my opinion, during the last provincial election, there was no clear choice articulated to British Columbians. I don't think there were any bold ideas, and there was little debate or discussion on the issues that actually mattered to everyday people. So I'm excited to get into this race to offer British Columbians a real alternative on how we can move this province forward and bring back uh, common sense. Okay, you actually put out a fairly detailed platform there running for this job. What, what would you say is one of the highlights there that you're, you're promising? Oh, well, as you kind of pointed out, I don't think anyone else even released a platform, which kind of yeah. surprises me, but we've got, we've got dozens of points. I'd say right at the top of that is get the cost of living under control, scrapping the B.C. carbon tax, ending the ICBC monopoly, uh, cracking down on violent crime and this general kind of lawlessness that, that seems to have overtaken much of British Columbia, uh, defend free speech, support BC resources, and fix our broken health care system, and of course, change the party name. Okay, who is Aaron Gunn? For people who have never heard of you, uh, you know, I think it's fair to say you're a controversial guy. The NDP are already saying that the Liberals shouldn't let you run because you're, you're a, like a right-wing extremist. I mean, you tell me what, who you are. Yeah, I, I seem to be controversial for the people that don't actually know who I am. Uh, yeah, I started working at, uh, I started my, uh, own business when I was still in high school, my first business. I joined the Canadian Army Reserves and after university, I went to work at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, which is a fantastic organization. It's kind of where I cut my political, uh, teeth. And then, uh, from that, where I left, I went off and built the largest social media following of any, uh, political figure in BC talking about, uh, the issues that matter to British Columbians. And that's normally kind of common sense issues and people that, I've seen my videos primarily on Facebook um, and yeah. have been following me for a while. Know, uh, know exactly what I'm all about. It's not, it's not some of these, I don't know, this innuendo that's trying to be spread or these, these lies and fabrication. It's just uh, not true. And quite frankly, for the people that have been following me all these years, uh, they just laugh at it. How many followers you got on Facebook there? Facebook, it's uh, just over 80,000. 80,000. Okay. Are you encouraging them all now to buy Liberal Party membership cards and vote for you for leader? Yeah, we've just started that process. Uh, we're, we're showcasing. I've, I've uh, heard from some other campaigns through the grapevine that there was a little bit of an uptick over the past couple of days, to say the least. Um, and uh, we're, of course, educating. A lot of the people that follow me are just everyday people. And as you and, and many of your listeners probably know, a lot of everyday people actually don't take part in leadership races. They don't even understand necessarily how they work. So uh, yeah. the first kind of challenge for me is educating uh, British Columbians and how leadership races work and why it's important uh, to take part in them. So many people during the last federal election and provincial election, they'll say, how did we end up with these people on the stage? And I tell them um, it happens during leadership races for political right. parties, and that's where you can get involved. Okay, the NDP put out a news release this week, Aaron, saying the B.C. Liberal Party should not allow you to run for the party leadership because you have harmful and discriminatory views. They say you have voiced uh, um, anti-homophobic uh, comments, uh, anti, anti-women comments. Like, let's, let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, you know, you used to be with a group called B.C. Proud, right? Like, what, what is that? Yeah. that that's, not the proud, that's not the Proud Boys. No, it has nothing to do with them. It's part, it's part of Canada Proud, which is the largest uh, kind of, I mean, the, they ran Aaron O'Toole's social media during the leadership. Um, it's a very moderate group. It's based out of, well, the, the parent company is based out of Toronto, and it's the largest network of, of Facebook pages uh, in the country. Okay, so 
what about the Liberal Party here now? Has your leadership bid actually been approved, or is it now being reviewed by the party? I mean, what's the what's the current status of that? Yeah, they uh, they have our application. It's all been submitted. We don't expect any trouble, but they are going through. They're going through their normal process right now. And they told us back in September when we were chatting with them that it would take uh, a week and a half or so. Um, and they've had our our application for just under a week, so we're not uh, we're not surprised by anything. And I think, quite frankly, they'd be crazy to try to to block us or anything like that. So I, I'm not uh, expecting any uh, any issues. Why Why do you say that? Why would they be crazy? Well, I think because, look, I've got obviously tens of thousands of supporters across the province, but more importantly, there's there's hundreds of thousands or even millions of people that agree with me on many of these core issues that, that we just briefly touched on. And if you're saying that I don't have a place in the party, you're saying they don't have a place in the party. And if you're saying they don't have a place in the party, they will obviously go somewhere else to vote. Okay, well, the NDP, I guess, in their attacks on you have said they put out a news release pointing to some of your social media posts and saying, okay, this is the proof that this guy is, stands for discrimination and, and he, he shouldn't be allowed to run. So one post that they pointed to on Facebook, you criticized uh, UBC and uh, some gender identity uh, training or curriculum there, which you said you called garbage you're saying you're, they're trying to indoctrinate the next generation with garbage i'm sure you're familiar with that that post what do you say to that when when the ndp point at that and say oh you're against lgbtq people or you're against transgender people yeah like it's it's obviously they have thousands of social media posts and they tried to pick out one right, where i yeah. criticized the ubc medical school for teaching that that women may or may not have male anatomy. Uh, this is in a medical school, and I think that's that's the kind of garbage political correctness that people roll their eyes at. Um, but look, I don't. I look, I don't care what you do in your own time. I don't care what your race is, what what uh, religion you are, what your sexual orientation is. It does not matter at all to me. I believe in a Big Ten party uh, that obviously has a, that everyone needs to treat everyone with respect, and when it comes, and that includes LGBT, of whom I have lots of uh, lots of supporters. So. Um, yeah, I think they're just grasping at straws and, and uh, trying to kind of create this innuendo about me that anybody who knows yeah. me or has been following my stuff just knows doesn't exist. What, what do you think that the, the NDP are trying to do there? I mean, are they trying to paint you and, and the entire Liberal Party as some sort of like an extremist party if you're allowed to run? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah. to be honest, to be frankly honest, and I, you know, I built my brand on, on authenticity and being straight talking, so I'm not going to beat around the bush. I think the NDP just sees this as an opportunity to sow division within the BC Liberal Party. Um, yeah. I think that they know that there's a group of people within the party who don't know much about me, and they're still trying to figure out who I am, and they're trying to create all sorts of, uh, just trying to throw misinformation out there, uh, to try to persuade them and, and try yeah. to, uh, you know, stir up controversy. Okay, speaking to Aaron Gunn, he is running for the BC Liberal Party leadership. Aaron, let's talk about another issue you've taken a, a stand on, and that is the vaccine passport issue in British Columbia. Uh, this is one of the most important issues facing our province right now with the COVID-19 pandemic. We've got the BC vaccine card system in place here in, in BC. Uh, the, Liberal the Liberal Party has supported the BC vaccine card system. You're opposed to it, correct? Yeah, so my position on the on the vaccine passport is basically the the same as the federal conservatives, which is I'm vaccinated, I'm pro-vaccine, I encourage others to be vaccinated, but I am very much uh, against forcing or coercing Canadians into injecting something into their bodies against their will, particularly when it presents 
really a, a quite a marginal risk to, to those who have already been vaccinated. Because, again, I believe in the vaccine. I believe that it's effective. Right. Okay. So you're saying you're vaccinated because you believe the science. You're not an anti-vaxxer. You're vaccinated yourself because you believe the science of the vaccine, right? One hundred percent. I just don't believe yeah. in forcing it on people. And I, I do have to point out, because I think people sometimes lose perspective, uh, when it comes to this policy, we have one of the most authoritarian approaches in the entire world. Uh, you know, we're, we're trampling over what, what are people's constitutional rights. Um, and while other countries like the UK, Norway and Sweden have abandoned plans for a vaccine passport or, or removed them already. So I, I think it's important to, to put that in context. And even other countries that have very strict um, vaccine passports, like Italy, which is one of the strictest in the entire world, you know, they have common sense exceptions, for example, natural immunity. So after you've recovered from COVID and, and rapid testing as well, if people want to go through that regimen. Whereas here in British Columbia, it's, it's pretty much a gun to your head and forcing you to get vaccinated. They're going to take your job and you're basically unable to contribute to any, uh, any part of society. Right. Okay. So if you won the Liberal Party leadership and let's say you end up as premier, you would what? You would cancel the vaccine passport. So if you're unvaccinated, you would be allowed to go in a restaurant. You'd be allowed to go to a hockey game. Right. Is that your yeah, policy? I think, I, I think there's a lot, of, a lot of places where we can have rapid testing instead, which is obviously if you're unvaccinated, but you have a negative test, you're less likely to have COVID than someone who is vaccinated. But I think, I, to be honest, between you and me, Mike, I really hope that by the time the provincial election rolls around in three years, this is no longer an issue. Well, I but, agree. Uh, I agree with certainly agree with you on that. I'm just I'm just pointing it out as this is going to be a, a divisive issue in, in the liberal election or the liberal leadership process here, because I believe you'd be the only candidate for this job who'd be against the vaccine passport. Correct. Yeah. 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 For me. But for me, it is all about um, uh you know, the morality and constitution, uh, the, the constitutionality of, of forcing vaccines on people. But I think the yeah. first thing that we can start at is just common sense. Uh, I mean, we're firing people and people are losing their jobs who, for whatever reason, don't want to get the vaccine that have already had COVID and have natural immunity and are therefore at actually uh, are more well protected about getting oh, the disease okay. again. R- right. So, OK, so let's talk about like health care, for example, or if, or for people who work in long term care homes. You don't think they should be required to be vaccinated to work in a long term care home or to work in a hospital. Right. Yeah, I think that I, I think it makes sense that you it, like you have to follow the science. So the science yeah. that shows uh, that you can have that you're less likely to have COVID-19 if you're unvaccinated, but are going through a, a daily or, or every other day regimen of daily testing. Look, I'm not saying that you should put other people at risk, but when there's other alternatives available, like rapid testing, that that because uh, again, if you're vaccinated, you can carry the disease and give it to other people. That's 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 well proven. So we just have to follow the science. If you've already had COVID and you have the antibodies, you're at less of a risk well, to get COVID onto another person. So we right. have to follow the science. It's kind of it's common sense. Yeah. Okay. But the science also says, and you said you believe in the science of the vaccine. If you're vaccinated, you're less likely to, to have the disease and you're less likely to spread it to someone else. Right. So you're saying that that should be trumped by personal freedom and personal choice. So if I'm a vaccinated person like you, I, I take the vaccine because I believe in the science. I want to protect myself, protect my family. I should be willing to go to a, a Vancouver Canucks game and, and sit beside an unvaccinated person and, and expose myself to a higher risk of, of getting COVID because of that other person's freedom. Well, right? if, if they're unvaccinated and have taken a rapid test that's come out negative, then they're less likely to have COVID than someone who is vaccinated and has not taken a test. So I, I think 
uh, I'm on board with you with following the science. I just don't yeah. think that we need to be coercing people unnecessarily when there's other options available. And again, it's exactly what the federal conservatives said during the last election, which is when it comes to travel and all these other things. Um, it is embarrassing. If you talk to people from other countries like the United Kingdom uh, that have rapid testing available, you can you can fill out something online and a COVID test will be at your house a day later. And here we have right. possibly the worst testing regimen in the Western world. Aaron, we're going to watch your campaign closely. Thank you for coming on today to talk about it. Thank you for having me.